Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, my name is John Kennedy and welcome to this special best of episode of Tape Notes. Looking back at some of the highlights from the amazing artists and producers we were lucky enough to speak to in season six. You'll hear from Disclosure, Biffy Clyro and Rich Costi, Georgia and Mark Ralph, Jacob Collier, Nova Twins and Jim Abyss, Nothing But Thieves, Sports Team and Burke Reed, Glass Animals, Heim with Ariel Rexshade and Rostam Batman Gleage, and finally Leanne Le Havis with producers Benny Giles and Sam Crow. But we begin with the long-awaited debut album from a man who needs little introduction in the world of music production, the legendary Grammy, Brit and Oscar-winning Paul Epworth to explore his space concept album, Voyager. We joined Paul, his engineer and right-hand man Riley McIntyre and collaborator Harry Edwards at Paul's studio, The Church, and we start with Paul as he gets creative with the Neve console. Space knows no boundaries. But with this tune, there's definitely a lot of pulling different elements from other ideas. You know, like the outro, there were some things you pulled in off another another track that I'd done where I was actually I was trying to see if I could make music using the de- feeding back the desk with a delay. So there's a lot of the sound effects of the weird drones and things like that. It was actually me sort of trying to destroy the Neve. <laughs> by, by feeding trying it, to destroy your treasure. Yeah, but by, by feeding it back into itself and tuning it by riding the fader you can actually play a desk musically like that as you know with bits of analog tape delays and just you know sometimes you've got to look for inspiration in strangest places but yeah i mean it's just this one was a as a head fuck I and mean, there's a lot going on in the tune anyway mm, yeah but there were a couple of points where we'd pull it up and i'd just be like i just can't see the wood for the trees so and i'd literally just mute everything and then put the drums in. We ended up calling it a judicious solo, didn't we? Yeah. Like, you know, like just to go like, we've got to judge this on a really simple level. Like, put the drums in. How much of the drums do we need? Let's take out the trap hats. It doesn't need the trap hats. Or it needs less trap hats. And then, and I think, yeah, you were saying earlier, there was, there just felt like there was something missing in the, you know, that we couldn't defeat. Missing emotion. Yeah. And then we end up finding the kind of the sunrise, ah, vocals. It was this vocal yeah. that kind of um, turned the tide, I think. And that is me. That's me with that's no auto tune. <laughs> <laughs> There's an incredible moment, lots of incredible moments during making this record where usually at night where it's completely dark and all of the lighting that is the standard lighting at the moment is usually changed to some kind of psychedelic color might be purple or (laughs) or washed out tropical oranges or whatever and you're stood here and we have the projector hanging just behind the desk so you're facing the speakers and you can see the projector behind it the desk suddenly looks like it's like a console of like a space station or something and you have all of these lights from the module synthesizers behind you and it does feel like you're kind of transported for a moment listening to the music and watching the visuals and being in this amazing space like it's there was quite a few of those nights where you're just kind of sat back like where I was just thinking this is pretty amazing (laughs) yeah that sounds incredible I mean it sounds you know Keith is talking about being on the Starfleet it sounds like you were part of the Starfleet and you were journeying into that that thing just above the desk Um, it also made the room feel like a cockpit because obviously this is a small part of a larger room and obviously it's a big open plan space it's not like there's Mm. walls you know unlike a normal studio we'd have a control room and a live room and then soundproof doors between. This is just one big open room with squeaky floors. Uh, and um, do you actually have to moon man? Yeah, to get over? <laughs> yeah. I just moonwalk everywhere. Yeah. And it didn't flip quite far enough. So I thought, I wonder if we get a pitch shifter on my voice. And I started sort of mumbling into the microphone like this. And then it wasn't far enough. And then I found I had this book kicking around that a friend had given me about 
ayahuasca experiences i sort of opened a random page and started reading it into the microphone just because it because it amused me i thought it was really funny and then you guys looked at me and you were, that actually sounds really good and i was like all right so it's a keeper then so that is the deep voice of the yeah, air yeah, yeah. we've we got to hear this yeah. <laughs> anyway that's enough <laughs> <laughs> can we hear that within the context of the music you think you have to be aware of the distinction between commercial pressures and creative aspiration and and the two are completely separate and the, the magic is striking that balance you know the the greatest record is the record have always ridden that line haven't they because they last they inspire other people to make great music and so they become validated but they also don't disaffect people they stimulate culture i guess like it's a totally self-indulgent record because you know i had to go there to try and get away from the idea of commercial aspirations but i feel definitely blessed to be able to have the, this situation the opportunities because you know the, I, yeah i wouldn't i definitely wouldn't have had the opportunity to make a self-indulgent 70s space concept album oh such a cliche isn't it i mean it's such a cliche but it's, so, it's such a cliche it's funny <laughs> <laughs> so here's that and then layered with the we found this sort of endless tone that comes in. Yeah, we found the, the shepherd scale generator, which is the shepherd scale is like a musical barber's pole. So it always sounds like something's either rising or falling. Just solo the other thing. So that's the shepherd scale. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. It's, a, it's an auditory illusion. Just a little tangent here. I, when I was working with McCartney, I was just trying to think of interesting inspiration to try and to trigger him to do something different. I was like, why don't we do a song based on a shepherd scale? And he's like, oh, that's a really good idea. Maybe we'll come back to that later. And I was like, oh, cool, he likes it. Okay. Anyway, I got in the car to drive home from the studio and I stuck on McCartney too. And the first track's called Coming Up. And a fucking shepherd scale was recorded. recorded four years after I was born. And I wonder if you want to do it. I was like, I'll get my coat. <laughs> Brilliant. The one and only Paul Epworth there. Now, from the outer reaches of space to the world of brothers Guy and Howard Lawrence, otherwise known as Disclosure, and their aptly named 2020 album Energy, an episode containing many great tips from these two wise heads on young shoulders, giving an insight into the hard work behind their success. Guy starts by singing his brother's praises. I think these are probably in the top five best Howard chords ever. So I was like, I want to show them off a bit. And so the chords in the vocoder are just doing the same as the ones we just played you. You know, these ones. So that's the Korg Poly 6 doing that. And then if I solo her vocal, but mute the bus, you should get just the vocoder. So this is what's happening underneath the chords. So that just gives it that kind of, for me anyway, an immediate disclosure feel, mm. little Daft Punk as well, you know, it just brings it into that space. I think we would have written that in like 10 minutes, yeah. for sure, and then just looped it. <laughs> but like we said, we probably wrote 20 other tunes that didn't get used yeah. to get to this one. So combine all of that. You know, it's not quite as simple as it sounds. Yeah, we should just not mention the other tunes. Like, yeah, we just whack <laughs> yeah. this together. Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But yeah, the drums and the programming and the mixing and the automation. I mean, there's so much automation in this song of synths rising and falling, delays mm -hmm. and reverbs coming up and going down, filters, you know, her vocal at the start, you know, starting down here. You know, all that kind of stuff. That takes months. I think I spent maybe three months, mm. four months, just coming back, tweaking something, leaving it, come back, tweak something, leave it. Like I'm a big believer in don't mess with it too much if you haven't got fresh ears. You know? Yeah, just little short, sharp bursts. The chord progression came about because of a conversation that I had with Pharrell, actually. <laughs> uh, not to name drop, but it was... Uh, <laughs> you can't not name drop if it's Pharrell. Um, where we were speaking about like old Motown songs where they would have like 
really simple chord progressions the whole way through and then in the middle eight all of a sudden you get this magical moment where the chords go all like expensive and jazzy and i was like yeah people don't really do that anymore because people just chuck in their best chords for the whole song uh, they don't like have any restraint so i figured like this song having quite simple chords for the majority i was like oh we've got to go a bit crazy with the middle eight now and because we had sid's voice to work with layering it up with the harms as well it made a lot of sense yeah that's right so she's doing some ooze here which just back up the harmony I really wanted this to sound authentically old and authentically two-step, you know, rather than it being a modern version of it. I wanted it to sound like a total throwback, like an ode to the genre. And yeah, that all came from this loop. It's very generous of Jeremy to put that out there. It is, right? Yeah, he's a good guy. So that's the bones of the loop. And then I added this big kick over the top. So I'm giving it that swing, a few stops in there. Boom. There's actually two kicks in there, a skippy one and a big 808 style one. So that's taking it away from it. You know, it could have easily been, but it felt way too fast. We're at 139 BPM here, so it felt right to make it a little bit more half time. Um, yeah, layered up over those. We've got another snare just backing it up. Yeah, those. So more skippiness going on. And then a hi-hat over the top. Just widening it out a bit. Lots of crackle and hiss. Got all this in here as well. I don't know if you can hear this. This is added by us. So, you know, again, I just don't feel like an old garage tune is finished unless it's got a bunch of tape piss and crackle over the top. It's got to sound like it's on vinyl. Yeah, yeah. even if you have to synthesize that and add it, you know, which I guess some purists would be like, that's stupid. But I don't know, man, we're huge fans of Burial. <laughs> yeah. and... All purists have that nasal voice, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> People ask us a lot, if I want to be an artist, shall I just get out there and start? Or shall I get an education? Or shall I do a degree? And, you know, if you want to be a sound man, a sound designer, you know, work in a studio you're going to need some kind of qualification i think but if you want to be an artist like with youtube out there now that's a difficult decision to make man mm. you know the debt is there do you need the debt over a free youtube education i don't know you definitely need something at the start just a basic crash course but pff, even that's on youtube now i don't know it's difficult to say and you know the software is so good now and affordable i believe ableton you know over lockdown was free for like ages so that's incredible. You know, if we were kids and we could have got Ableton for free mm. with all the plugins, that would have been fantastic. So, yeah. you know, that's part of the reason why we're doing these breakdowns like what we're doing now. And, and we're doing a lot of live streams talking about this is because we want kids to see you can start doing this at home in your bedroom like we did. You know, there's no magic secret apart from, you know, you need those ideas. The ideas don't come for free, but putting it onto paper is getting easier and easier and more accessible. And, and that's that's great. Inspiring words there from Guy. Next up, we hear from Biffy Clyro frontman Simon Neal at home in Scotland and producer Rich Costi joining us from his new studio in Vermont to discuss A Celebration of Endings, a record that showed them there's always room to push the boundaries and more to learn. And it's not always glamorous either, as Rich asked Simon to elaborate. But why is it cold? Why were you dressed like that? That's the key part. We, we don't have any heating. We're on a farm. There's no heating. Uh, there's cows next door. It needs to be cool for the cows and for the milk. <laughs> we, we're at the bottom of the list. And they're in like a, a room that's just pure concrete. So if you can imagine his strat and 500 symbols in a small concrete room, it's really pleasant in there. It's loud. So this is a, a phone record. I think it's recorded on a phone, I think, this demo. So after we, we threw a bunch of different guitar sounds at it, as Simon mentioned, and in the end, what we ended up using is uh, was simply as a 1969 100-watt Marshall into a 1969 cabinet with your Strat, I think, just going straight into it. I don't even know if we had any pedals or anything. I don't think we um, had a pedal. I think you drove it hard. Yeah, with like 157 on it. Like it was this 
most basic of setups. This is a man that spent his entire life in plugging in as many amps as I can get my hands on. <laughs> like there can never be too many overdubs. It blew my mind that you could get such a tone and such a sound, which we'll hear it or maybe in the, I'm not sure if it's the final version we'll listen to next, but it's made me change my view of how to play guitar and how to record guitars. And that's after making however many records. So it's also, it's a great feeling to feel that you're still learning at this stage of being in a band. And I think any creative person who thinks there's nothing to learn is just hitting a dead end. But it's nice when you're surprised, you're like, fuck, I can't believe one guitar can sound more powerful than 10. And it's taken me this long to kind of realize that. We're at Abbey Road and got such a killer drum sound. We recut the breakdown section over there. So then it goes to this other drum set with a totally different sound. For the In whole a totally different country. Different country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Same player. That's the insane live room in studio too. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe the Beatles got that room sounding dry for all those albums. <laughs> it's insane. Listen to this. Um, yeah. And then what happens is it goes from there. That's a different uh, snare. Right, and then it cuts to the LA kit again for the very outro. Love that. This is definitely not, a, that's not some easy shit to mix right there. Oh my God, there's even more guitars down here. What are these? Oh yeah. That's I your love main these. guitar. That's the. And then these particular guitars, it's the same thing: AC30, Black Bolt, and a JC120. They play throughout most of the section. Again, this is a section where the guitars are less distorted than you would think when you're listening. This uh, wah guitar is interesting because this is just the Marshall with one mic on it. It's just like, it's very focused. Love it. It's always tempting to add more guitars to a section to make it heavier. Like, add a piano note on the first beat of the bar, like just something cleaner that gives it that power. And it make, suddenly makes it sound as though there's so many guitars, but you're using a different instrument to give that moment, that pulse. And we did that quite a lot in this record. We, we tried to resist just putting layer upon layer of guitars and and again, it's Rich that's taught us that over the years because, you know, the more the merrier for me. What's this less is more shit? Um, <laughs> like, you know, Rich just knows because it, it it's a different way of hearing things. Standing in a room playing a guitar is a lot different than hearing them through set speakers. So, yeah, I'm sure you had to pull my reins a little bit on that. Uh, this is my favorite Simon lyric right here. Rainbow since 79. I'm, like, I'm gonna get a t-shirt, a hat, the whole business with that. Well, it's funny you should say because I have a wonderful merch idea, which is to have a t-shirt that says I've been punching rainbows since, and then you get to put your year of on it. Do you like that? Yeah. Wow, that's good. That's really good. <laughs> it is really good. I want one of them. Simon Neal, an entrepreneur as well as a rock god. And now, the first of two Mercury-nominated albums that we featured in September. Seeking Thrills is the debut album from Georgia, which she recorded with producer Mark Ralph. And to start, Georgia tells us about the interesting heritage of her home studio in London. You know, it's, it's quite creative in this room. It's a small room. My, my dad built this studio back in the kind of late 90s, and it was where Left Field were kind of going to make the demos for the r third record but um sadly they split up and uh, so this st <laughs> the studio became slightly sort of like tinged with a bit of uh you know bad feelings but um i moved in here about 6 years ago and i've kind of created sort of songs and and all sorts in here really mark or I can't remember, would have programmed that in. And then there was some other elements that were from the demo that Mark felt was good. So there was an egg shaker. 
Oh yeah, I had this sort of because the, the song was quite influenced by African rhythms as well. So I did. I had a few things going on there, and then obviously the bass line. So that would be the SH101 and the Nord all midied up playing. And then the Jupiter, as Mark said, playing the... And then the OB6 to just give it, well, just to add that sound that was inspired the whole track. You know, as we go along, sort of part of the process is listening to lots of other records, some that we, you know, George has come in and gone, uh, you know, I, I actually loved this record. Is there anything we can kind of be influenced by on this record? And sometimes it's something quite substantial and sometimes it's, you know, just a tiny little transition of some sort, you know. Obviously, you've got to be careful not to just plagiarise things. And I, I don't think that's the point. You know, a lot of it is sort of getting influences from a broad kind of palette of ideas which are just based on all of your favorite records and we've got a lot of favorite records that are common to both of us we like music from yeah. the same sort of era and lots of different yeah. eras as well but i think once you've taken little influences from maybe six or seven different sources what you end up creating with it's like having six or seven paintbrushes for different colors you end up with something that's quite original because it's not directly taking from anything in particular it's just um making a a palette of all your favorite things that you think you'd quite like to hear in that piece of music and coming up with something that sounds very original and sounds very unique this track was really the beginnings of me thinking that I actually could have confidence being a singer. And definitely coming out of this session with Mark, I felt more like a singer in a way. And that was a very important point of the whole making of the record. It was that suddenly there was this turning point of like, actually, you know, what people want to hear at the end of the day is something that can latch hold of and that's what Mark sort of has taught me really throughout working with him is that the vocal really is the thing that people latch hold on to and although you know production is incredible and it's so inventive and creative I think a vocal is the glue that holds it all together and I think previously I, I didn't really I think I've always understood that but I didn't think I had it in me to do and um, I'm still learning you know still developing but this song I remember that feeling of just being oh okay maybe I can do this actually maybe maybe I have got it in me And of course, she has proved herself right. Georgia and Mark Ralph there in a special episode also broadcast as part of AIM House 2020. Now we enter the musical universe of Jacob Collier and his four-volume mega-album, Jesse. Having already won two Grammys for the project, the latest volume, Volume 3, has seen him receive three further nominations, including Album of the Year. From recording his own audience to A-list pop stars and everything in between, Jacob shares his ideas on taking music to places no one has ever been before. But first, let's try and get our heads around this. So we've got voices dotting around in there. there. We've got voices rising, rising, sort of bubbling to the surface. And then I played this groove. And this groove is it's a bit of a tongue twister for the brain. And you think it's in five, but it's actually in seven. And I'll explain that now. You think it's three, four, five. One, two, three, four. But it's actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Think of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So that, that was something that really got under my skin. I thought, oh, this is great. I don't know how to feel it. And if there's something you can feel two ways, it gets me excited. 
the base in two. And to glue it all together, I have this kind of stomp clap thing. And there's an interesting story behind the uh, stomp clap samples that I used within this song. Uh, I did a tour in 2017 and um, there was a gig in, I think it was in Manchester. And I had this idea that I, I didn't have the kind of we will rock you, boom, I didn't have any sounds that sounded like that. And I wanted them for this song. I thought, for with the love of my heart, I want to get this like, these amazing sounds. And so I asked the audience, I said, hey, this is after the show, like so encore time. I said, hey, do you want to help me out with some, with some samples? I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do it. And so I said, okay, so half of you get out your phones and the other half of you, I want you to do this rhythm. And so I said, you got to stomp this rhythm. It goes boom, boom. And, uh, and so they did, and the people filmed it. And I said, okay, everyone who filmed this, upload the video uh, to Twitter or Instagram or something with the hashtag uh, JCStompClap. And later on, I'll go through them and put them all together and make it into a, and, you know, basically use it as a, you know, use it as a sample base. And I have those sounds here, actually. I might just show you because they're, they're really fun. <laughs> and so great. these are the sounds that, that you heard at the gig. And you got some And so I've chucked all of these into a battery instance. But they sound really fat and awesome, you know. It's like a Yeah. It's just twenty-four wow. mobile phones, basically, combined Amazing. and kind of compressed and you know, I took the ones that where the high end was cool and the ones where the low end was cool and I, I put them into separate buses and compressed them differently and put some different EQs on and sort of bounced them on out to the samples, threw them into battery. And it was intended for this song with the love of my heart, but I've actually used them in all sorts of stuff since because it gives me a sort of warm feeling. It's like, yeah, that's my crowd. Yeah, that's just my, <laughs> that's my people. Yeah. So modulating is a great way of adding mood, you know, adding energy. But I'd already modulated for the first chorus, so modulating wasn't novel. <laughs> and so what I decided to try was modulating, I suppose, one quarter of a tone or half a semitone higher than I had done in the first chorus for the second chorus. And so actually in the second chorus, I modulate to this key, which I suppose is, well, it's like E half flat in the sense that it's not this note, it's not this note, it's kind of, you know, that weird note in between. And so take a listen to this. This is the first chorus. Right, that's the key. Here's the second chorus. That sounds bad. That sounds right. So let me see if I can A B this. That's one, and then. So it's this tiny amount higher. It's like an almost like an imperceptible difference. But I believe that, in, especially in the West, we are very ingrained about what we believe to be a familiar key center and a sound that we know. And so this strange other key, this foreign non-pianistic key that goes beyond the 12 tones that we're used to, it has this subliminal effect of lifting up and it's almost like this untrodden snow. It's like, whoa, I've never been here before. This is crazy, you know? And that's the feeling I wanted to, to portray musically and that's why it has a purpose. Ty is one of these deceptive figures in pop music who is, kind of known for his kind of A-list pop star um, rep, you know, but actually he's a serious cat and he really hears stuff and he really enjoys kind of deep music and music that goes harmonically into unexpected places and stuff. So, you know, I, I just suddenly thought like, yeah, this song is maybe the right balance of something that Ty could could contribute to. And, you know, I sent it over and, and it was just this amazing bundle of energy came back and I've got just all these incredible, you know, incredible stems that he sent me of him singing all these amazing kind of ad-libby things with his kind of classic auto-tune sound on and and all this stuff. And I, let me see if I can show you some of that stuff. Yeah, that would be great. Underneath the moonlight, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Feel all right. Always be the one for me. Shine. So the interesting thing about this is you sort of think, oh, yeah. That sounds like Tidola sign. But he's actually effortlessly navigating these two key centers. And then. 
E-flat. Jacob Collier on Ty Dollar Sign and his amazing vocals. Can't wait for Jesse Volume 4. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back with highlights from Nova Twins, Haim, Leanne Le Havis, and more. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. For our next highlight, we turn to Nova Twins with producer Jim Abyss on their debut album, Who Are The Girls? And we start with the unexpected way in which they met Jim. And there's always been this thing with us, hasn't there, G? We've always been like we need to work with someone, we need to work with a particular person. And funny enough, we kind of see Jim's name before just by looking at great producers and stuff, but um, never thought how could we contact him. Then out of the blue, he just popped into our emails. Literally was like, hey girls, like I've heard your stuff's really cool. Like what are you up to? And we were like, what the hell? <laughs> it was so weird. We literally always say Jim fell from the sky into our email. <laughs> Everyone's always like, how did that happen? Because whenever we spoke to people, it's always like, how do you get in the room with a big producer? How do you actually, you must know someone or it must be like a family friend or something. But he literally fell out of the sky into our email when we needed a producer. It was so weird. So the bass is all played in one part. And how do you get that effect then? Georgia, give your secrets. That's just all on my pedalboard. Even in the studio, I didn't tell Jim. I was, it was all taped up. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the end of the first night, you were more worried that I was going to untape your pedalboard. <laughs> no, I discover. It was crazy. <laughs> and you were like, you I don't care, Georgia. I don't care about your pedalboard. <laughs> I did really. He was like, I don't care actually. <laughs> uh, no, well, this is this is. I was going to come on to this with your bass line. Obviously, you make a really unusual sound, but a lot of the bass lines don't sound like that if you just listen to what you were physically playing. But the way you use your pedals to sort of like change the sound and the notes and whatever, mm. you create these bass lines by. I mean, watching Georgia was part of the thing that blew me away when I went to rehearsal. Not only was the bass sound so powerful and an unusual and unique sound, you dance on the pedal board. Everything stems from like a live take of the bass, but then there are overdubs to bring out things just for the mm. sound. So, for example, the bass will be doing this. But there's also an overdub to make the sound of those high bit sounds to pop out. So, the thing panning in your headphones, just to bring those sounds out. And when you put it together, it just lifts those things out in stereo. Mm. Yeah. I love the bit when Amy goes like uh, yeah. into the chorus. 
And I was just like loving that idea. I've never heard somebody use a croak to join the two. And it was just like such a clever idea. But here it is. weird in your face. Which in context it ends up sounding like this. I think I've I've always kind of liked vocalists that kind of mess with their voices a bit, like use it more as an instrument. It's just like the same with the guitar or the bass. You can slap it, you can pluck it, you can, you know, mm. make harmonics jump out at you, you know. And it's, I think it's the same with the vocals when you listen to singers like Kate Bush and Betty Davis and um, even Santa Gold, who really would just use their voice and manipulate it. I just found that really interesting and... It's just fun to do. (laughs) I think actually the starting point for loads of things that I do, bands are often surprised when I say bring all your own stuff. I think a lot of people think that they're going to come to the studio and I'm just going to provide them with better quality versions of what they have. And yeah, sure, we have loads of great pieces of kit, whether they're instruments or pedals or anything else here. But that's not the starting point because normally bands by the time they get to the studio, are probably quite frustrated with their gear because they've used it for a long time. But they also have used it, if they're good and they're creative, they've used it to the max and they've done things on it which are uniquely them. So I think get the most out of your limited set of kit, whatever it is, try everything on it. Try plugging things in different things and seeing what happens because you'll do something that's unique to you. And then if then you come to the studio and something's just not big enough sounding or fat or whatever the word is, we've got stuff here that can help that. So no one piece of kit, just I would encourage people to mess about with their own gear and try lots of different combinations themselves. That's my my favourite bit of kit. A novel take on kit advice from a man worth listening to, Jim Abyss from our Nova Twins episode. Next up, Connor, Dom and Joe from Nothing But Thieves take us behind the scenes connecting to their lockdown bubble with all of the ingredients and sonic experiments that went into their album Moral Panic. With Dom at the helm as the band's in-house producer, we start with one of his demos of Is Everybody Going Crazy, which sounded a little familiar to the rest of the band. This was me taking the riff and trying to make it more synthy and psychedelic-y. And it was like T-Rex meets Tame Impala, but really, really shoddily done. And you'll, you'll hear that. Um, this is actually relevant for later on in the actual song, so it did play a part, but um, yeah, I'll play that now. We thought it sounded a bit like Mr Blobby. It is Mr Blobby. It sounds like Mr Blobby. <laughs> Mr Blobby. <laughs> um, <laughs> it literally is. I love it. Now, that one didn't, that one didn't make the cut, sadly. Because we got really drunk that night and didn't write the next day. I remember that. We we it was a <laughs> we, we, we had the done day. our work. We, yeah, we, 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 like, we had got real love song. Yeah, like work. Right, we've got one song out of it. Let's go that, to East Grinstead's pub. Let's go to the Swan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, try and win the pub quiz, <laughs> <laughs> which we did. Yeah, <laughs> and then we, because we felt like we owed the community of East Grinstead something, we we put the money that we won behind the bar and bought everyone a drink. So you know. I'm sure they were grateful for that. Now we're local heroes. Yeah. We've got the key to East Grinstead. Yeah, exactly. Whichever, whichever one's after. Yeah. It's a bit rusty, but we've got it. Um, that's impressive public relations, I think. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, um, but this song started um, with a really, really simple bass slide hook. It was a little 30-second instrumental, and it just had this sound here. Yeah, so this version has what we call pushes in it. So rather than the uh, actual riff being sort of on the beat, so it goes dun, bam, bam, dun, bam, bam. We're now pushing as so a dun, 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 dun. It's a really small change, and to most people, you probably wouldn't even notice it, but it gives it way more energy. And that was a, a bit of a debate and something mm. that we did at like the mixing stage, I think. Yeah, we kept changing it around. And if you actually listen to the song, it does flip between these two things yeah. being uh, pushed and not pushed. Just because sometimes you want to give a burst of energy, sometimes the groove felt better when it wasn't pushed. So it was sort of like quite a big job in just 
working out figuring out what what was better at what point of the song yeah which is i don't know something we didn't even consider in the writing stages just when we actually got to recording it together as a band and listen to it you know a million times it's like okay well, that, maybe this can be a bit better that, this way sure uh, can you illustrate that yeah well so we go from this is how it sounds in the intro so which is the pushed version then halfway through the verse you get a straight version ignore the vocals in the background but yeah if you can hear the difference um, mm. if you can't maybe we wasted our time thinking about it too much but <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> well wasted conversation yeah. hours we're constantly looking not just within this song within every song about how we can experiment with the vocals and yeah like how you can make each section flow into each other without being boring um, and this song is a, is a really good example of that yeah, so actually this is the actual recorded vocal. This is no longer demo. This is from the studio version. And you can hear those backing vocals have sort of reappeared. And you can hear this weird BV going on. Still there. And then going into the next section, which is... This is way more melodic and Connor sort of pushing into his falsetto more. And why have I just made that up? Let's have a listen. It's worse. Cause I'm another person. You created this mask. You are the grand designer. Rebel in our unrest. I literally think the logic was we've gone from something really quite choppy and rhythmical. Mm. Let's go completely the other way. Let's go for something that's more legato and longer, more melodic, uh, different part of the, the voice and the vocal range. And that gives you license to drop back down for the chorus, which is more aggressive, lower in register, and also, well, in terms of being in stomach voice, and mm. also way more rhythmical again. So this is the chorus change from the pre-chorus. Our managers um, said really early on when we were like 18, 19, um, that no one wants to hear shit songs. Basically, what I'm trying to say with that is write and write and write and write until it becomes a natural thing. It wasn't for us at all at the start. It was um, a lot of discovery about, I'd say, f almost three years of figuring out writing until it became a muscle um, thing. So I would just say write until you, um, you become better, essentially a better writer, an actual writer. That's really important. Good advice there from Connor from Nothing But Thieves. Now for the second of our special Mercury Prize episodes. Back in August, we were lucky enough to visit Sports Team HQ to chat with Ollie and Rob from the band and producer Burke Reed about the making of their debut album, Deep Down Happy. From using the rehearsal room as a bedroom to the frustrating prodding and poking during vocal takes, we got to find out why everything they do ends up so playfully chaotic. Here, they start us off with a demo of Kutcher. We had a really long middle eight and we had no idea how to make it interesting or find lyrics. So we just <laughs> downloaded like an old interview from YouTube and put it over the top and then we thought, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> this is suddenly a hit. <laughs> I think, yeah, when we first started, we'd have had, it would have all been on like one of our phones, but yeah. we, we definitely didn't have any sort of knowledge of logic or anything like that at that point. Mm. So like that, the edits we did on there would have been on something like Audacity or like a free software. Mm. But we had no, like, I had no idea how to do drums or like, when we first started recording things as a demo, when latency kicks in, we were like, oh my God, we are so bad. <laughs> like, I had no idea what was happening to us and like nearly gave up at that point. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this song would have been kicking around for a long time just on guitars. Yeah, I think this was done really quick. This was done in, we had a, like a rehearsal space at this point. We were rehearsing and I think it was in the morning we came downstairs. I think Ollie is sleeping, which is why there's quite a lot of lyrics in the demo about <laughs> sleeping. Um, and it was just a very quick sort of riff. Me, I think it was me and Henry originally were playing through. I'm yeah. not sure. I think you were sleeping at this point. I think, well, I mean, I would have started sleeping, but my bed was next to my bass amp yeah. and the drum oh, kit, yeah. so. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. have Ollie slept, was sleeping but... in the rehearsal room, so I think a lot of the lyrics about him were meant to wake him up or annoy yeah. him. Yeah. Probably both things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was like really quick. It was one of those sort of surprising songs where you start playing something on guitar and you're like, oh, wow, this actually sounds good, and the drums come in, it sounded good. I've gone the chain by a house of a mode, by a 
prices. By the Portuguese coast on the Cap d'Azur! We could go swimming! What we were doing was like recording with usually have like a microphone in the main room and then we'd sort of were feeding the signal at the same time into the web amp yeah. in, the, in the other room. So just recording like distortions and everything on the vocals at the same time, just trying to have a little bit of a clean option, but the amp like... Uh, we don't laugh anymore because we don't joke anymore. By a cold, a cold, so that was actually quite loud. And in the same room, I think it's leaking into his actual vocal mic as well. <laughs> and then that's sort of like, we could go swimming. That's sort of like his main. We go out with our friends and we sit by the Thames going fishing. And then just sort of a blend of the two. I think we were probably on this one as well. You're trying to get Alex is always recording right at the end of the day. And, uh, you're trying to get him to that like point where he sounds kind of desperate on it, you know what I mean? <laughs> so he sort of sits there and does about 5,000 takes where he's like, you know, actually singing quite clean and nice and quite like normally. And then eventually right at the point where he wants to leave, you're like, okay, another like 10, 20 takes. <laughs> like, put him through it again and start recording at that point, I think. And you start getting that like, the voice starts breaking a bit more and he starts sounding really pissed off. <laughs> Which, you know, again, like takes away from some of that like cuter pop edge mm-hmm. of like the lyrics or the song. We always ask people a, a couple of questions. Um, one of them is a piece of advice that you would give or you've been given that has stood you in good stead that you feel other people should be aware of or should share in some way. I think you've just got to be as ambitious for something as you can. I think as you know, Burke said to us, and it was great advice that we got, he was like, you know, these bands you love that you think are these huge acts, at one point they were just dumb kids in a room. You know what I mean? At one point they were guys or girls. Anyone who can play their guitars, can play their instruments, had never written a song. So I think like you just have to go about whatever you're doing with that ambition. And, you know, one day you'll be the Ramones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or yeah. a kind of bad version. Rob from Sports Team on the importance of ambition. Back again for his second outing on Tape Notes, we were lucky enough to pick the brains of Dave Bailey, frontman, producer and mastermind behind Glass Animals. Returning with a heap of treats from their new album Dreamland, Dave shows us there really is no end to what he can do with his voice, starting with a Tape Notes favourite, The Crack Choir. Yeah, and then I have another Stax group that is... I've got stack casual, stack jaunty. You think that your space goes. That's casual. Coast coast. I'm gonna go straight into jaunty here. And then a stack low. Think that your space goes. Quite chill. Stack nippy. Fuck that shit now I go. My way and you go yo. Stack weirdo. You think that your space goes. You want in coast to coast. I think that's got an effect on it. And stack robot. I don't, yeah, I, w- I went for it, and the end result, it just sounds like a lot of weird voices. You think that your space goes, you want in coast to coast, fuck that shit, now I go my way and you go your What I quite often like doing is beatboxing the drum beat, so you can hear my original beatbox which is this. I'm not really a beatboxer, but... And that is basically what I tried to do with the drums at that point. I think it's, it's really similar to what's in the final drum beat. So that's what I wrote over, is the, beat, <laughs> the beatbox. Right. But I just find it really useful, one, for almost simulating the sound. It's a really easy way... In, just to get the sound that you want. You know, you can almost hear the kind of sonic quality of the hi-hats and the like length of the kick drum and how high-pitched the snare is and how tight the snare is. You can do all of that with your mouth. You can get a very quick snapshot of what you want your drums to sound like, just like that. There's a kind of breakdown that almost sounds like a guitar in the middle bit. I don't know if you know this section of the song, but... This is actually just my voice pitched. Right. Yeah, let me see what it's saying. With the effects off here. 
So again, just using what I got. It's just distorted to heck. I use this plugin called Alter Boy that I'm obsessed with. And it's going through a guitar amp, fake guitar amp. Heatwaves was written on this. I don't know, I don't know whether it's very confusing because they're instead of actual finger positions, they're animal stickers in all the wrong places. So <laughs> <forget laughs> where everything is. But it's it doesn't sound particularly good. But it's the guitar used in heat waves and I brought it to my mum's house for Christmas apparently. Mm. And you will hear that in this. I mean, it's not the most gorgeous thing I've ever heard, I'll be honest. <laughs> no, but you could, it's, you've captured. I'm just the working. Idea. I guess what I'm doing is trying to work out. I'd, this is how I write a lot of the time. That's it. I don't know. I just sit down and start playing and singing at the same time. Mm. And you can hear, if you listen very carefully, in that, the vocal melody. Yeah. I, as the person who's made the music, I'm definitely the wrong person to mix these songs because I kind of want to hear every detail and every little thing. Yeah. He doesn't. He wants to, he wants to hear the cool shit. <laughs> so <laughs> what he does, and he is so right to do it in this song, and the reason Dr. Dre mixes and his mixes sound so impactful is he takes the cool stuff, the important things, and turns it up by like 12 decibels, just ramps it up. And the stuff that's not necessarily lending itself to the knock and the hit and the bounce of the song or... Is maybe not as important. It comes down. Yeah. What I can do now is just play a little bit of my actual final mix of this section. So it's here. And then Ali's is here. This is his. See how much wider and cleaner and Back to mine. See how he's turned the the teeth noise, the mouth noise up yeah. so much. The bass guitar has come way down. Here's his again. And he's so right to do all of those things. Yeah. Just the bass guitar he saw is like, nah, that's not helping this knock. Let's turn that down by comes down by like 12 decibels and then the mouth noise like that is the thing. See how it's it's incredible. You can really hear the difference. Dave Bailey on the mixing skills from Dr. Dre's prodigy Derek Alley. Now, linking up with two studios in LA, Danielle from Heim and producers Ariel Rexshade and Rostam Batmanglij take us through the happy accidents of recording and explore the essential sounds that make a song distinctly Heim. We join them reflecting on the moment ideas started to take shape for the track Gasoline. We were recording with a Telecaster for the steps and we were sort of passing the Telecaster back and forth and maybe taking a break. And I started to play a little riff on the Telecaster. And then Danielle started to sing. And I think we have a voice memo of that if you want to play it. And I kind of usually just sing whatever's coming to my head first. Which is weird because that's actually, I feel like the chorus yeah. a little bit, but we didn't end up figuring out the chorus until like days later. But I, we did figure out the verse. Yeah, you could hear like the. Right now. Da, da, da. Like a little and, bit. And then hold on, I'm gonna flip through a couple of these voice memos. I took you back for the seventh time. Something like that. I took you back. Can 
kind of tell, like, as we're just working out the idea, we're sort of like editing each other's ideas, which is, you know, it's part of the process of collaborating, whether it's on songwriting or production. It's like you're passing the idea back and forth, and every time it gets a little bit more refined. That was that more expressive first line. Oh, that that's interesting. I get sad. Is that when they recorded the second verse, it was distorted and I loved it. And I think we can all fall into this thing where you're like, when you feel the responsibility of of making this record some or a record, sometimes professional? Yeah. Well sometimes you just <laughs> want to make sure you did it right, you know? And I remember Rostam and Danielle re recording this line a few times trying to get it cleaner. But we ended up using the distorted take, which is sounds like I get sad. You can see the waveform just fully flattens out <laughs> on sad. It doesn't even sound that crazy now. It's funny at the time. Well, that's how I From my perspective as a producer, like I remember being a teenager and reading about Bjork's method and how Bjork would get Matmos to program drums, and then she would go and record a choir in Iceland and she would put it all together and it was all sourced from these different places. And I felt like as I entered the stage of being a professional producer around 22, I was really inspired by that. Like, oh, we can record the drums in this room and then record the vocals in this apartment. And then we'll go to our friends to do the guitars. And then we'll go find a piano in a lounge at our old college and we'll record the piano in that lounge. And I always loved recordings that were put together like that and that you can hear all these different spaces in one record. You know, when people talk about how the band cut it live, all in the room together, I'm like, that's great, but does it sound good? Does it feel textured? And I think that Ariel's work on Catacombs is an exception. You know, it's an incredible sounding record that was recorded all together. But like, to me, it's more about like, what does it make you feel when you hear it? To me, like the traveling between the different rooms and putting that all together in one place. When I hear those recordings, that's when I see all these different colors in my mind. Drums are probably the most important thing when it comes to Haim songs. Drums are an instrument that our dad, like our dad taught each sister how to play drums the second we could hold up our heads. So, you know, my dad's a drummer. He loved teaching us and I find it, I mean, even though we actually didn't write this song from drums, a lot of Haim songs are written from a drum pattern first. So I feel very spoiled because I feel like every time I work with Ross Dam and Ariel, the drum sounds are impeccable. You know, if part of the idea of the song is about a 3 a.m. booty call or, or something, the, the bass line really emphasizes that kind of slinky aspect of that idea. Definitely. Asti's a funky bass mm. player. You can play that one way and you can play that this way. It almost sounds like there needs to be a stretched out ambient trip hop version of this for 20 minutes or something. Say no more. <laughs> yeah. I'll get right. What's that? That's called like a 10 inch yeah. mix or 12 inch <laughs> yeah. mix? Yeah, it's fun to listen to it like this. It's- Definitely want that 12-inch mix, please. Ariel, Rostam and Danielle from Heim on 3am. From the hills of Bath to New York, LA and back to London, Leanne Le Havis's self-titled third album took her on a journey contemplating matters of the heart. Surrounding herself with a trusted team of collaborators, including co-producers Benny Giles and Sam Crow, they gave us a wonderful insight into their studio antics, as well as their attitudes when things aren't quite perfect. 
But first, we delve into the wonky drum sounds of Bittersweet with Benny. So we bring in the percussion and everything, and then we're like, wow, this sounds great. And then we put the whole drum bus through this old spring chorus echo. Oh. And it just gives this amazing character, and it's loud in the track, so I'll find that for you. So that's the whole drum bus going through the chorus echo, what the 555 or whatever it is. And that is really loud in the track and it just adds a whole character to it. And actually, if you take it out of the track, it has quite a different sort of colour. This is with it out. It sounds kind of cleaner and tighter, and then you bring it back in. It's just that really wonky old spring sound that I just think adds a beautiful colour to it, and it makes it sound kind of older than it is. One of the things that I love about Leanne is there's no rules. It's very playful, very organic. There's no kind of, like I said, I was pushing for sort of like re-recording the guitar because like recording instruments and producing and stuff, you're like, okay, we can do this better. But it has character and I stand corrected because it, you know, it didn't need doing again because it's got so much soul in it and the noise adds to the soulfulness. And then also just the fact that you went for that guitar even though it wasn't the one it's just this playfulness and i remember that in new york as well as like there was a talkback mic oh yeah in the control room and she yeah. was like oh, what does that sound like to record things on <laughs> and chris was like we got all these incredibly expensive mics on that. and you want to use the talkback mic and actually the did we do the, we the very end section of sour on it in the control room right on that talkback thing yeah yeah, just not coming in with any sort of preconceived kind of ideas of how things should be done. They had tried a few rounds of it and, you know, I was like, well, yeah, surely it's good, but I was unsure. And it was like a whole other process of discovery. I was like, why am I not quite satisfied by this very brilliant, perfect-sounding thing? And it just was slightly it was just not me it's like my hair had been combed too much i needed some atmosphere what you call the when i was little and i tried to put my hair so it would paste down by the end of the school day you'd have all these little curls just around my forehead and my friend calls that atmosphere <laughs> so instead of being like oh your hair's messy it's like no it's just got atmosphere yeah. so that's what it needed yeah. but Dan brought that in his way of interpreting whatever the hell I was trying to say something I find in a writing session that I think is hard to establish sometimes is trust and I think when you have trust, you can quickly get to from, get from A to B. Yeah. yeah. So we were quite quickly able to identify what we liked and didn't like. And yeah. that became like a way that we worked. It's like, do we like this chord? Great. Do we not like that one? Cool. Scrap it. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, so I think that was pretty clear from early on. The thing that I know about Leanna, she, when she knows, she knows. And if... If she's not into it, you just keep trying to find it. But as soon as you find it, it's like, that's it. It's that. And then the decision is made and you can move on. I love how you said that. Because it is finding. It's not really making it up. Yeah. You're looking for something. It. He's yeah. literally, that's how he got that sort of how distorted thing. How does he do that? That yeah. run that he does. I couldn't even do like, that. Sam, <laughs> would you <laughs> please <laughs> like to have a go see that? Wow. <laughs> He's no perfect. 
It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's crazy. Can you send me that, please, solo, yeah. so I can use it as my alarm clock? <laughs> <laughs> that is so amazing to hear that on its own. It's nuts. That is mental. I don't really understand what's happening when people play the flute, but I adore it. Hmm. It's one of my favourite instruments, and I've always wanted to learn, but like that's something divine he's one in a million that guy for sure mm -hmm. yeah well, like I don't, i've never heard anybody here. kids learn more flute okay <laughs> also, everyone out there it's not all just about guitar and <laughs> well, piano exactly, yeah. learn the flipping flute <laughs> learn the flipping flute amazing advice there from leander havis with the help of flautist gareth lockrain bringing this best of tape notes season six to a close Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. There's plenty more gold in the full episodes. They are well worth a listen. And now, to round off our Season 6 highlights, we turn back to Leanne Le Havis once more and that magnificent flute solo in Pride of Place on her track seven times. Coming up next week on Tape Notes, Bicep. We're pretty organised with everything that came back. We had it into folders of like B-flat minor, strings, Zosia, Julia Kent, A minor. And we just started to create a sample library of our own of everything that we got back. And what happened was as with the album process developed, we'd go back into the demo folder and we'd find strings that worked perfectly for another demo. It's a weird vocal sample for us because we'd never normally choose something like that and we were experimenting with like lots of different style vocals. Yeah. And this is very much like, uh, you know, what we grew up with, you know, like the, the obvious like church kind of like song. Gregorian monks playing in my house all the time growing up in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs>